everybody, and welcome to the Defense Café, the liberal security and defense podcast from the Friedrich Naumann Foundation in Brussels. My name is Jeroen Dobber from the Friedrich Naumann Foundation. And I am Theresa Reiter in Vienna. And today we will be speaking with Letizia Bobrich, who is a policy advisor to the Spanish Liberal Party Ciudadanos in the European Parliament and a long-time member of our Liberal Defense Expert Network. With Leticia, we will be speaking about Spain's security threat perception. Spain's very special role in the European Union because of its strong alignment of defense goals with European defense goals. And finally, the role of the defense industry in Spain's politics and its economy. I for one didn't know that they were such a big arms exporter and that I played such an important role. Let's get started. Hi, Leticia. Thank you for joining us. How are you doing? Hi, Jeroen. Hi, Teresa. Thank you for having me. Uh, I'm doing well, thank you. It's a nice sunny day here in Brussels, which doesn't happen very often. Yeah, true. We don't get that very often. We're, we're lucky today. We invited you uh, today to talk with us about uh, Spain's security and defense policy. Uh, but before we start, could you maybe tell us a bit more about how you became interested in security and defense policy uh, and what explains your interest also in the European dimension there? Well, the European dimension, if I can start from your last question, is an easy one. I work in the European Parliament and I've worked with the Spanish delegation in the European Parliament for the better part of the last five years. And when it comes to defense, particularly one of my main tasks Uh, from when I joined as a political advisor was the Security and Defense Subcommittee of the overall Foreign Affairs Committee. And I had the pleasure of working with a very prominent member of the committee during the past mandate and now continuing with the same party. I moved on a little bit to uh, international trade policy where I also continue with defense, especially on the dual use regulation and other exports that affect uh, international trade, also from a defense perspective. Yeah, interesting. And a lot of developments in that area as well lately. So we can talk about that later as well. But let's jump into the topic. We wanted to hear from you a bit more about the security situation in Europe from a Spanish point of view. Could you talk us through the main security threats that you see for Spain and for Europe from a Spanish point of view? Sure, it will be, be my pleasure. I'll, I'll try to be uh, as concise as possible. But uh, I think that the main point to start with is that Spain is overall, as in pretty much every policy area, very aligned to the own EU's perception of threat. So when it comes to Spanish perceptions, they are, as a society, very much uh, intertwined when it comes to the future of Europe, to where Europe is going, and democracy as such being threatened from a number of actors. These being external factors, international factors, rather. In Spain, it all comes down nowadays basically to either terrorism or cybersecurity threats. So in this regard, it shouldn't really um, diverge from any other member state when it comes to elections, for example, that could suffer from interferences or a very sophisticated hyper threat to uh, national energy grids or um, gas, for example, uh, supplies. But if you talk about Spain specifically, it has a little bit of a geographical uh, specificities of its own, mainly due to the fact that you know, it's, it's a southern neighborhood border. And it's also the EU's southern neighborhood border. So when it comes to this, if you look at it, at the Mediterranean Sea, you see, well, you know, the north of Africa with its tumultuous past, still posing a rather dormant and potential source of threat that every once in a while resurfaces. Specifically on the north of Africa, 
Spain is also present. It has two autonomous cities, Ceuta and Melilla. But from time to time, it's not really too often, but suffice it to say that it does give way for this sensation of a stabilized, sort of low-pressure tension, which is why I like to call it a dormant, because they could very easily resurface at any given time. Uh, not for any particular reasons, but this could be from well, uh, pressures on the on the borders and it's also with Morocco, migratory pressures. It could also be because of the uh, societies that the way it's, it's composed of a very multi-ethnical populations. It could sometimes give way to tension. And if we look at nowadays polarized society in Europe, it's very easy to see how well a populist or or other uh, interests could, could could really play into threats for the perception of the citizens. If I were to give an example, specific example, is Morocco. It's one of the, it's, it's, of course, it's a long-standing partner, both for Europe and for Spain, especially. But unfortunately, in the past years, we have seen, on several occasions, minor but but interesting uh, threat perceptions. Usually, these are migration-related, but it could also be something of a more serious nature, such as tensions that are perpetrated at a government level, like uh, sovereignty claims that the Moroccan foreign minister made uh, with regard to Ceuta and Melilla, uh, precisely, or in the case of the Canary Islands nowadays, uh, that's suffering a lot of these migration flows into its territorial waters, which is also where Morocco is coming again, saying, well, these are actually our waters. And you can easily see how this, you know, goes into play into rhetoric that it's really localized and Spain receives a different pressure. Suffice it to say that this is not a, per se, top level of the agenda threats, but it's something that if we don't keep an eye on, it could... um, very easily become a problem for Europe. And if you look at Morocco, who decided only very recently to suspend its diplomatic relations with, with Germany, this could become, you know, like a snowball where from, from something that wasn't really under anybody's radar, it, it becomes a, a problem for Europe. So, which is why at the beginning I was saying it's pretty much an EU perception threat when it comes to, to Spain. I think that the main issue here is that these are several layers of tensions when it comes to this particular area in the southern neighborhood. Obviously, migration intensive zones uh, from all over the African continent, which is not to say that migration is the problem itself. It's rather this whole spectrum of organized crime and lack of capabilities in the standing countries that creates well, this dramatic humanitarian situation and a complete havoc in terms of security. So from a geographical perspective, this is what Spain would perceive mostly as a particularly own challenge. But on the broader picture, these are concerns that affect other EU countries as well. And of course, in the frontier state with a particularly unstable south neighborhood, it's one of the issues that in Spain are mostly, let's say, present in everyday public opinion. I have a question. You really explained that well now. I was um, particularly astonished that migration um, was not a larger driver for uh, right-wing populists in Spain, because uh, compared to the situation in Austria, that's all they thrive upon. Um, many other countries have seen this as well. And, and also uh, Spain is in a very interesting position being so much aligned with the, with the EU security perception there. Now, recently there was a, a visit of the high representative of the European Union to Russia. He's Spanish. Where does Russia fit in, in all of that uh, threat perception? Because it's really high up in the EU's uh, threat perception hierarchy. But where is it with Spain? With Spain, particularly, Russia is considered as much as, as a threat as any other member state. 
particularly in Spain, on several occasions, and going back to the first word of uh, democracy and interferences in, in elections, uh, there have been quite a few, um, there are actually ongoing judicial cases in, in the courts in Spain, based on investigations that found a link between a, um, well, Russian hackers linked or not to a certain extent uh, by the Kremlin agenda to um, intervene in local um, elections, regional elections, and particularly in the case of Catalonia, which I'm sure that our listeners know that there have been quite a few tensions with a separatist agenda, assumably based on these judicial investigations linked to a sponsored of a hybrid attack on, on Spain. So, uh, Spain is very much aware of, just because it's very far from it doesn't mean it's not present. It is a cybersecurity threat, and uh, it has been on the agenda of, of Spanish ministers. With regards to the visit of the high representative, yes, we were all, uh, I guess, uh, looking at the news with a lot of bewilderment and said, what well, could they have possibly expected to get out of this visit? You go to Russia and you expect Lavrov to say, you know what, you're right. We need to get things straight. We need to be uh, better partners. I wouldn't want to be too critical of that visit in the sense that, well, it, it is his job as a high representative. He has to try. But uh, I'm not really sure if that was a strategic move. I think it was simply a misplanned display of this is the EU. We are united and we come here in a kind of good faith, which is, which is really, it's legitimate enough. We even have the French president that is really also kind of pointing out that this would be a good idea. But unfortunately, Russia told us, no, guys, this is not your land. This is ours. Thanks. That's, that's very interesting. And I also had to think when Teresa mentioned her question about Spain being so aligned with, uh, with the EU policy, about the fact that indeed Spain is very pro-European in, that, in this sense, quite different from a lot of other countries as well. What do you think are the reasons why Spain is so, so much aligned and so much engaged in European initiatives in security and defense? Well, you'd have to look at the past. And I'm going to be very honest here. Um, when it comes to military, per se, Spain was, well, for the better part of 40 years, 50 actually, under a uh, military dictatorship. That means that when the transition towards democracy comes, there is this idea in society somehow that the military is part of a state-controlled apparatus. Therefore, society decided to open themselves. One of the best ways of achieving this was, of course, through integration and adhering to the European community back at the time. And that left them with this perception at government level, what do we do with the military? We have to professionalize them. We have to have civilians into the military. This has to be an important part of our government and of our own structure as, as a nation state. But somehow our society doesn't really fit into simply because of our own past dealings with, with the military. That doesn't mean to say that Spain is anti-military or anti-defense or anything of the matter. No, it's simply it, it shifts its mentality from becoming a very highly controlled through the military state into thinking, how can I really make this useful? And it, it is, okay, I'm going to put all of my efforts into Europe. And that goes through military as well. This you can see that Spain participates virtually in every single common security and defense policy missions throughout the world. When PESCO was launched two years ago, Spain was among the first countries to participate in all of those 17 projects uh, that were initially envisaged. So I guess that in it, their mentality, Spain 
still has to reconcile a little bit with its military past in the sense that it was conducted, you know, as a, a state level, but without really shutting it out, without saying, no, defense is not important, military is not important. No, it's just putting its efforts into where the military can best contribute. And in their regards, not really being a global leader or any sort of um, decisions maker on the global scale, they are a very trustful ally. They're cooperative. They, wherever they can, they send either personnel or products or in any way they can help, they will always be there. So this is, I would say, the main reason. It's because Spain decided to open themselves up and with the military was just another area of, of participation. It's one of the biggest contributors to, to, to CSDP globally. It has it remains so so to date. It was one of the main drivers. I'll just interrupt you here uh, to, to ask one more question about this topic, because Spain, as opposed to many other countries in the EU, is lacking, as we uh, already discussed a little bit, these diehard anti-EU uh, uh, forces in Parliament. Do you think that is also a reason why it is easier to do um, a very strong pro-EU common uh, defense strategy there? Well, I'm not sure if it's easier, uh, the question. It definitely complicates it because the legal framework for defense, it, it's very haphazardly spread throughout the treaty, it generally has a deficit in terms of defense spending. But it does have quite a few resources it could pull into. Now, from a parliamentary dimension, if I understood your question correctly, I think other nations see Spain as an honest broker. It's not a player that will necessarily have a particular interest in one area or another, or that will position itself globally in the case of specific challenges. It will rather be seen as a minor player in terms of military, but with a big impact in terms of resources and pooling resources. And uh, just simply being there. You know, there's a problem, then we will accompany our partners and our, our member states, Rodrigo. One question about that, you, you talked also about this role as an honest broker. What kind of role does Spain foresee in the future also of, of European defense integration? Different countries uh, foresee different roles for themselves. I think France uh, sees itself in, in a very leading role there. Germany more and more as well, but also as a kind of hub and spoke uh, nation. What kind of role does, uh, does Spain foresee for itself there? And also, what are the allies in Europe in creating that role? I think Spain is very aware that they're not a global leader. It does not see themselves as such. And they're aware that they will not really advance in that way. I don't really think there's an ambition in terms of becoming a, a major global player deciding on its own or kind of like imposing a specific agenda. And this also goes in hand with the fact that on, on this and on other topics, Spain really goes towards a multilateral cooperative approach and bringing people at the table rather than creating separate interests. Of course, what does Spain have to do? Uh, from a strategic point of view, it's just be there and contribute and take it seriously as a contributor. Why? Also because if this provides or if you send a message of tranquility and of seriousness and there's this security that you can provide, then also sends the message to investors to where they can locate, well, whichever new programs for factory productions or, or new projects where they could be implemented. So that would from a strategic point of view, 
should be Spain's bet here. I'm going to sit at the table and I will simply put myself out there as the one that will not really go into fights necessarily, but rather try and deter others from, from getting into one. In terms of, uh, you mentioned allies, I think, Jerome, uh, allies in the EU. I would say um, there is a big, big consensus on the need for strategic autonomy. Not all of the countries are on board. I think that one of the countries that was a bit reluctant was the Netherlands on the strategic autonomy. Austria doesn't really either come very clear about this. And at the end of the day, <laughs> indeed, what do the Germans want and what do the French want? Unfortunately, as sad as it sounds, we're still there. Now, I think that both France and Germany want the same thing, and these would be a main allies. But the question is, if we talk about industrial production planning and the future of industry in Europe, who is really going to take the biggest bit of the chunk? Right. And here there are a lot of different views. There are those that prefer no open strategic autonomy and there are those that simply want a strategic autonomy, no openness whatsoever, which could lead one to think is this protectionism, which could be, of course, legitimate as well. Uh, if we are to compare ourselves with China, where there's no, I, no talk whatsoever about openness or the US, which is a bit more of the same in terms of buying American. Okay, so um, we're almost at the end of the podcast, but the industry uh, topic is really very important for Spain. I read that more than 200,000 jobs depend on it in Spain. Uh, also that um, the defense industry is partly seen as kind of a factor of wealth distribution regionally because it brought industrialization to provinces that formerly had not so much of the cake. Now, I understand that uh, since um, more than 70% of the, the arms sales uh, that Spain makes uh, is going to EU countries or NATO partners, uh, Spain is highly dependent on future uh, arms uh, projects within the European Union and NATO. Is there some kind of, I don't know, tension? I mean, I know that, that Spain has had a bit of bad luck uh, in the last a few years on that, might have lost some, some contracts. Is this a factor of, I don't know, uh, being nervous in, in Spain about the future of this industry? Mm. Yes, I do think there is. There is a nervousness with regards to Spain's own role in being, what I was saying before, a supplier of certain parts that may miss in the world. So they know they're not going to be the next standard setter, but they can't really play into the little things that go into different projects, especially if nowadays we're talking about consortia in Europe, at least three countries that come together. Is, is it electronic systems? Is it vertical takeoffs? Air terror refueling? Spain can provide this, and they have a very good geographical base throughout the territory that, that can provide for stability. Now, what you were mentioning about the defense industry being very important, a study from 2010 showed that for every 1,000 euro invest, spent on defense, had a return on investment of 1,296, something of the like, which only shows that it's a strategic approach towards investing and getting back the money you've invested. And also in terms of, a, of social expansion, it provides for uh, around 120,000 personnel, some 50,000 direct jobs, and overall indirect employment that, that Spain is a very depressed country in terms of its internal rural areas. People are leaving. It's, it's actually a factor throughout Europe, but particularly in Spain, where 
you know, they have had massive youth unemployment, several crises out of which they are still to take. And now with COVID-19, the situation is not going to get any better unless there is really a strategic bet on participating in these European projects. And I think that is the key. Spain has to become more involved in European projects where it can take the parts of the project that they can deliver faster because they do have to resilience for it. Otherwise, it's going to lag behind. And I think that the main question as well, just to finish, is that Spain has had a structural deficit in terms of investing in defense. They're way below their 2% target. 2024, which was the set date for the Wales Declaration, is this well, it's going to be here sooner than we expected. And with this current approach to, uh, to defense spending, I don't see it anywhere reaching the, that goal and overpassing this 1% that it's been hovering around a little bit. Okay, so thank you for all these very interesting insights. We come to our last question, which some claim might be the most important. And we have asked it to many of our colleagues and they have had excellent answers to that. And now you, uh, Letitia, if uh, European Security and Defense Corporation would be an animal, which animal would it be and why? Well, so just to make sure here, we're talking about CSDP, so that's a common security and defense policy. Well, I see it, um, I see it as a donkey. A donkey is a, it's a humble animal, but it's a resilient animal. It's an animal that if it doesn't want to move, you're not going to move it, unless you incentivize it. You put a carrot in its face and it can move. It's also an animal that, you know, when nobody else wants, wants to do the heavy lifting, they're going to carry it, you know, they're going to take it, but nobody else wants when it's too heavy for everybody. And that, I think that's a comfortable landing zone for a lot of member states that it may be unpopular to take a unilateral decision in one member state at a given time. But if you push this onto CSDP, you know, then it, kind of, it becomes lighter and our little donkey could carry it for it. And also, of course, it's a little homage to, uh, to Don Quixote Squire, to Santa Panza, whose um, animal uh, companion was donkey. And at one point in the book, yeah, Santo Panza says that I may not have a horse, but I have a donkey and it's worth twice. That was beautiful. <laughs> Fantastic, yeah. Thank you, guys. With that, we are letting you uh, go today. Thank you so much for being here, Letizia. And goodbye. See you soon. Thanks, Letizia. So where we're going next time, topic-wise, the uh, security hub of the uh, Friedrich Naumann Foundation in Brussels will soon have a meeting in April. It will be on cyber defense, on legal aspects of cyber defense, and also um, increasing capabilities in offensive uh, sense. We will get back to you with the results of this meeting and tell you what we have learned and looking forward to that. If you like our podcast, if you have enjoyed this episode or maybe others that you've listened to before, please be so kind and tell your friends about it and share us on social media. We are looking forward to welcome you again next time. Bye-bye. Goodbye.